Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes today. And we're going to be talking about the letter known as the first letter to the Corinthians. We're going to talk about how maybe that's a little bit of a misnomer. Right. But uh, really enjoyed last week's episode with Ryan Smith. It's really great to have him on the podcast. Obviously, wish we could do that in person. But uh, great conversation about worship. Really respect and love the way that he leads, but also the way that he sees worship as a part of the church that's bigger than just singing. Mm -hmm. So today, we want to do a book overview on 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is, in my opinion, one of the most unique books in the in the New Testament. I would put it, obviously, it's in the category of Paul's letters. But in style, it's certainly closer to a book like James, maybe, right. than it is to a book like Romans, which sits immediately to its left mm-hmm. in the New Testament. So to start with 1 Corinthians, I, I wanted to do a little bit of background on the city. And I think you can go overboard with this, you know, where we've got, you know, sermon series where you do three opening sermons on the textile situation in an ancient Greek city or something like that. And, you know, one of the things that's really important for reading the Bible is finding the medium between what is helpful historically and what is coincidental historically. Right. So it's just like anything that happened. If you were going to tell, uh, you know, let's say you write a letter, which I fully expect that you will, first Oklahoma City. <laughs> And in that letter, you make some references and things, and you would reflect, especially since we know that Paul was not a native to these cities. Mm-hmm. He was there for a while, like in this case, he's there for a year and a half. But So he knew a little bit about the city, but he right. wasn't a native of the city. And he makes some references to things that happened in the city. Well, if you write your letter, First Oklahoma City, then... Uh, it, how much historical background would we want to know? Would we go extensively back into the oil industry and how it's shaped? Would exactly. we talk about the coming of the thunder, you know, in whenever, whatever year that was and Mark? Sometimes we treat these books like that. And it's important to remember that the history of the city shapes what Paul's saying, but a lot of the history of the city is coincidental. Right. And so it's all about finding that medium of what is helpful and what is informative, what's instructive in writing these letters versus what might be a cool fact about Corinth that we know. And that's that's hard to do. There's actually a lot of scholarly debate over what the historical background has to do with interpreting the letters. I agree. For example, using your example of first Oklahoma Cityans, it would be important to know that Oklahoma City, in general, the people here were not a high transient population. They had Midwestern values. That would be very different than if you were writing this to a city in British Columbia, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the most useful thing to know about Corinth is the fact that Corinth was not a great port city like Ephesus, for example, but Corinth sits in a really unique place. If you look at a map, and I wish we could show you a map, but if you look at a map, you'll see Corinth sits on what's called an isthmus. And it's just a narrow strip of land, and to the east sets one sea, and to the west sets another sea. And it's kind of like the Panama Canal in that for commerce, you would really like to take the short route and go straight from one of the seas to the other. Well, they didn't have a canal across this. I think it's maybe three and a half mile uh, stretch of land. I mean, they tried in the first century, but they failed. They didn't have the technology. But you know what they would do? Corinth sat right in the middle of the trade, and they would unload ships on the eastern side and 
portage the cargo over to the western side, put it on another ship. And so they were sitting right at the hub of all of this commerce, and needless to say, drawing some tax money and labor out of it. So they were a very affluent city. The second thing to know is because you have all this trade, anywhere you have a lot of trade, you have a lot of different ethnicities and religious backgrounds. And so Corinth was not only a rich city, very cosmopolitan city. I don't know a good example in America, but you know it could be like uh, a Seattle or an LA, you know, someplace that does a lot of business into the West. You have a lot of uh, Americans, Hispanics, Asians, etc. You have a mixing pot of cultures and ethnicities, and I like to think of Corinth in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the most important thing I think about the location as you're talking about is if you want to go from Italy to the rest of Greece, or if you want to go from Italy to Asia especially, Mm -hmm. it's easier to sail up to Corinth and then port your goods across the isthmus than it is to sail around all the bottom of Achaea into uh, getting to where Athens is or something like that. So you're realizing that there's a lot of flow through this city, a lot Mm -hmm. of different people coming. Um, We think in the modern world, maybe like a Singapore-type Right, that's a good analogy. And what comes with that, and I think what's most significant about that, is there's a great exchange of ideas that pass through Corinth. And one of the things that Paul is really uh, poised to talk about, and one of the things we'll see, one of the things he's most upset about in the Corinthian letters, is reflective of the different philosophies and especially the different schools of rhetoric that that have come into Corinth. Right. In fact, one of the things you see... In Corinth, it's kind of unique to its background is that the people are used to philosophical and moral teaching at a level that we don't get in the other letters. If the other cities were, uh, we don't see Paul talking about it like he is in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians and in a lot of the letter in 2 Corinthians. So they're making a comparison between Paul and all the guys who come through to give TED Talks in Corinth. Exactly. And one of the charges that they're going to make against Paul is, you're just not as good a speaker as the rest of these guys. So why should we believe what you have to say? And that's a huge problem in Corinth, and that's a useful detail to know in the history of Corinth uh, because it helps you understand what Paul's writing in this letter. I agree. That's really interesting. You're comparing that to TED Talks is you would have teachers building a following and don't I don't mean this negatively but think of uh, Jordan Peterson who is not a Christian but has a great following because he's trying to answer the question of how to live a good life mm-hmm. uh, Simon Sinek's TED Talk on start with why right not even slightly Christian but many people flock to it like oh okay this will help me live a good life and that's mm-hmm really what it was like there. Yeah. And Paul comes into that and he doesn't have polished video. He doesn't have a fog machine. Yeah. He doesn't have, you know, this great rhetoric and style. He just has the gospel. In fact, in the letter to 1 Corinthians, he makes a point in chapter 1 of saying, "I didn't come to you with worldly wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." So, mm-hmm. he was a little underwhelming to them. Yeah, he was. And and that's something that he tries to defend. Jordan Peterson's a great example because he is up against some teachers who are Christians, mm-hmm. albeit that Paul disagrees with certain pieces of their doctrine. 
but he's up against a backdrop of rhetoric that's not Christian. Right. And so the question that's being asked in Corinth at the beginning of the letter, at least, is probably similar to someone who says, well, why should I go to church? I just like listening to Jordan Peterson. Right. Well, there's a lot of things we could say to that. Jordan Peterson may be a better speaker than your preacher, maybe a smarter guy than your preacher, probably is in 99% of cases. Right. But Jordan Peterson isn't offering the same thing that your pastor is. It's actually very different. And they may overlap in certain ways. And what we see in 1 Corinthians is Paul does overlap with some of the Greek teachers in some of the things that he's saying. But they're not offering the same thing. Right. And Paul defends that. And so that, that I think, is probably the most important backdrop to understanding the letter. The second thing I'd want to hit is how did this church come into being? And we find that out in Acts chapter 18. This is after Paul has been in Athens. He goes over to Corinth, and he, after this, he's going to go to Ephesus. He's hitting the major, major city centers of Asia and of Greece. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons he does that is because Paul's missionary strategy was to go into the big cities, the big hubs, and then people who heard him there or became his associates and, and fellow pastors would go out into the smaller areas around the towns and they would evangelize a whole region by teaching and training people in places like Corinth. So you see this uh, probably most specifically when you read the book of Colossians because you have Epaphras who joins up with Paul, listens to him teaching, goes, plants the church in Colossae, then comes back and finds Paul, We think probably to ask some questions, say, hey, these people are not behaving like I thought they would. They're not responding the way we thought they would. What should I do? Paul had a lot of these relationships. And Corinth was one of his major hubs. In fact, it was the gateway to the West until he actually goes to Rome. Right. So in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he's not only care, he doesn't just care about this church pastorally. He really cares about this church strategically because there are some really important associates and allies in this church. And one of the couples who plays a huge role in the New Testament, we meet in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, which is Priscilla and Aquila. They have been sent out of Rome. They've been expelled from Rome and have set up shop in Corinth. And I think this is interesting. I mentioned this book when we talked about the book of Acts Uh, The book is called The Social Context of Paul's Ministry. It's by Ronald Hawk. It's a short book, probably 100 pages. And he talks about the background of what Paul was doing as a tent maker in the first century. What what were tent making franchises like? Who are Priscilla and Aquila? What do they and Paul agree to do together? How does Paul use his time? Paul, especially in places like Corinth, is a craftsman. Mm-hmm. He was probably engaged in all kinds of different business dealings and stuff. Tent makers usually had some kind of government or military contract. Right. It's possible that one of the reasons he linked up with Priscilla and Aquila is because they were coming with military contracts from Rome. We really don't know. But uh, it's typical that he would work in the mornings in a workshop uh, at his trade and that he would be apprenticing younger men in the trade and discipling them. Then in the afternoons and the evenings, he would be teaching in the synagogues, teaching classes, and equipping people to do 
ministry. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila, what's so interesting about them is we get a little glimpse into who they are because they rebuke Apollos, who's going to be a major player in First and Second Corinthians as well. But what we don't get a sense of, unless we're looking for it in the New Testament, is that they were financing a lot of what was going on in the New Testament church. So right. these people are not just business associates. They are also Christians. Mm-hmm. And they are people who have money. They have a multi-franchise tent-making company <laughs> with branches in Corinth and Rome and maybe Ephesus. We don't uh-huh. know. And they are extremely instrumental in helping Paul to facilitate the ministry that he's doing. And the reason I mention that is because it's sometimes hard to translate what you read in letters like 1 Corinthians, although 1 Corinthians is easier than most letters in the uh-huh. Testament into real life. So to think, well, you know, Paul was just going around preaching all the time and getting beat up and he didn't have to worry about, you know, money because the Philippians were supporting him for a while or, you know, whatever. Right. Actually, he's in the midst of a business situation that's very similar to the situations we find ourselves in today. He's a craftsman. He has a skill. He is working with franchisees in business. He's apprenticing. He's using his relationships at work to talk about the gospel. He's in major city centers in an ancient world. This isn't Jerusalem anymore. I mean, this is a major secular city. And this is where he's writing these letters, First and Second Corinthians. That's a really great point because it also gives you an idea of how to apply this to our lives. He saw his business and turned it toward spreading the gospel. He saw it as a kingdom business. It supplied his needs, although not well. I mean, as you read his letters, he's used to being hungry and so forth. And so he doesn't wait till he's got a stockpile of money. Nevertheless, he sees that as a means to a bigger end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. You know, the other thing that strikes me out of what you just said is the idea of sending churches. We probably don't think about it this way, but the first, to me, uh, intentionally sending church would be Antioch in Syria. So Paul is a new Christian. He's teaching with Barnabas and a few others in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them, and they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them off on a missionary journey just to Mm -hmm. go preach. But then in Ephesus, as you were saying before, he spends three years there. These young disciples, he doesn't take long with them before he sends them out to the surrounding countryside. So Colossae and Heropolis and all, if you look at a map, that whole area of what's modern day Turkey, they called it Asia. Today it's Turkey. If, if you think about it, they started churches in almost every little town around there. And in fact, when you go into the second century, so long after Paul is dead, that area is a bastion of Christianity. Those mm-hmm. little churches were faithful for the next century and beyond. But then Corinth is also one of those mm-hmm. where he's planting it, he's working so that he can preach without charging people money for it, making a church and immediately discipling people and sending them throughout the whole Greek area. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we think about it that way, but uh, that is that was Paul's model. Right. So we start 1 Corinthians, and to give a quick overview of the book, you can basically divide the book up into about three sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 4, and in that section, he is dealing with the charge that we talked about earlier, that he's not a great speaker. And what he's going to do in chapters 1 through 4 is he's going to 
draw a distinction between the word of the cross, which we see in 118, mm-hmm. and the words of wisdom uh, that you might find in the Greek rhetorical schools. So he says over and over, I did not come with words of wisdom or eloquence or lofty speech, but instead I came with the word of the cross, or I came in the power of the Spirit, or we see in 2 Corinthians, he really doubles down on this, and he says he's not a swindler. He's not peddling the word of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says in verse 22, uh, one of the real paradigmatic sentences in uh, the first four chapters of the book, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So we get this opening section all about wisdom. Chapter 1, he's talking about God shames the wise in the world. Um, Chapter 2, he talks about, well, you know, there is a godly wisdom that could be discerned spiritually. Uh And then he says, you guys weren't ready for that. That's why I had to feed you milk instead of solid food. Chapter 3, he moves on and begins to talk about his apostleship. And the same thing in chapter 4. And then we get a shift in chapters 5 and 6. And the theme, if we want to find a theme verse, although not every book has a theme verse, but if we, if we look for the theme verse of 1 Corinthians, it's in chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That theme is picked up really for the first time in chapters 5 and Mm 6, where he's going to deal with two specific cases that we're going to get to. And then he applies it in chapters 7 through chapter 16 in a variety of different ways, a lot of those being more gray area issues. So if you want to think about 1 Corinthians, it's descending in levels of uh, black and white. So right. chapter 1 through chapter 4, Paul is making a no, no wiggle room case for the power of God, the wisdom of God, the word of God. Chapters 5 and 6, he applies it to two issues that he says we cannot agree to disagree about this. Right. There is no wiggle room. This is a universal principle. And then in the remaining parts of the book, he has very strong opinions that we'll talk about. But they are much more particular um, Here's how we're going to make this practical. Here's how we're going to deal with this specific situation. And he's going to demonstrate the kind of godly thinking and godly wisdom that he talked about in chapters 1 and 2 to the problems that they've written with to him with in chapters 7 through 16. That's important. Uh, that I'm glad you broke that down this way because this is the way the letter goes. And sometimes we too quickly latch onto the idea of unity and the idea of unity being our highest goal. It is not. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that here. There, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's going to be very divisive because we are united around the truth. And where there's clear truth, there's no room for, well, let's just all get along and everybody goes his own way. You know, live and let live. Yeah, that's a really good point, and it's very countercultural, uh, at least in the way that our culture presents unity which we have an interesting push and pull going on in our culture between unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. So those two things in, in a lot of ways are contradictory to each other. Unity is a big deal. Diversity is a big deal. 
And I think probably the best statement would be, we need to be united in our love for diversity, is about as good as you could put it. <laughs> but what what's interesting about the way that Paul sees the world is unity is not the top goal. The truth, the way the world really is, the way that uh, the world is in Christ is the goal. So thinking, being like you are in Christ is the goal. That should bring about unity. That's exactly. what he's saying. Unity is a symptom, not the root cause. Exactly. So in the church, a lot of times what we do is we make unity the top cause. Say so we just need to be united. So let's just set aside all the other stuff. Let's just stop uh, you know, entrenching into certain things and let's just be united. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes you just need to get over a certain issue. And there's some things that Paul says in here that will help us to know when that's the case. But that's not how Paul argues. Unity is not the top good for Paul. It's a symptom of the top good, which is being in Christ, thinking like Christ, having the mind of Christ in 2.16. If you have those things, the same thing is true in Philippians. Philippians is this exact same theme, but shorter. Right. If you are in Christ... If you are following Christ, if you're being led by the Spirit, you will be united. So the demand for unity is actually downstream from the demand for holiness in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we have to be careful when we're urging Christian unity to say, we never want unity at the expense of truth. We actually believe that if we get the truth right, and love right, and all the things that go with that, unity will arise. So in chapters 6 and 7... He's going to take on, or in chapters 5 and 6, he's going to take on two cases that are pretty difficult and detrimental to unity, we would think. Uh, But actually what he's going for is going to lead to a different kind of unity that he's been advocating. I agree. Um, He's going to talk in chapters 5 and 6 about, for example, sexual immorality, which was rampant there. The sexual mores of the various cultures in Corinth weren't godly. And so he's, there's no wiggle room on that for him. Now, later, when he gets to food sacrifice to idols, he's going to say, well, this is right, and this is actually incorrect. Nevertheless, this is not an, a non-negotiable. We can, we can live together with a difference of opinion. But you notice he starts out things that are taught clearly here, and there is no difference of opinion allowed. No difference of opinion and not left up to conscience. Right which is an interesting theme in 1 Corinthians. So in chapters 5 and 6, Paul actually scolds the Corinthians for not making the right choice, either on an ideological level or on a conscience level. Because in in chapter 5, you get a specific case of sexual immorality. A man has been sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. And he says, there's no circumstance where this can be okay. Because you can imagine, people then... We're the same as people now. Can you imagine the backstory and all the things? And this right. is an exception. No, Paul says, look, this should not be this should not be the case. And the fact that you guys are boasting about it, saying, look, we you know open-minded. We're open-minded, we we're giving grace, we're accepting of different things. Paul says, no. You should be ashamed of allowing that. So then he recommends something that uh, is very difficult to talk about in American churches today. He recommends church discipline. He says, remove this person from the church. Why do you think that he decided that they should remove this person from the church? My view on this is because he's going to talk uh, 
later in chapter 5 about there's a difference between people who are believers and people who aren't. He yeah. said, when I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about the people out there who aren't members of your church. Good heavens, you, you, can't, you can't throw a stick without hitting somebody like that. I'm talking about people in the church. Mm-hmm. Here's where we tend to get this wrong. Then we think, oh, well, we're police. We're going to find everybody who's doing something sexually immoral. I'm just picking on that for the moment because that's the topic in chapter 5. And we'll just, we'll just go police that. Paul doesn't do that either. This case is unique to me because it is leaven in the loaf. Mm-hmm. This guy is doing something and people are bragging about it saying, look how open-minded we are. And other Christians who go, wait a minute, this is not what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. This is not what we were taught are being influenced. This is a matter of removing a cancer, if you will, from the body, mm-hmm. removing the bad leaven out of the loaf. So I don't think Paul is giving us a model here that, okay, watch your neighbors, and anytime they sin, bring it up before the church. Yeah. This what is do you a, think? This is a theme that's easy to miss in the New Testament. There is a difference between people who are doing things that are wrong. Consistently is usually where we see this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just you make one mistake, because we don't see Paul advocate for this, for example, when he challenges Peter in Galatians chapter 1. He doesn't say we need to expel Peter from the church. He says we need to just write this wrong. Believers right. can disagree. We're going to see that through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Right. Believers disagree. In fact... We're inclined to think that the disagreements later in this book, so for example, the way that they're doing communion, Uh are more egregious than this. (laughs) But there's certain things and certain patterns, and it's typically habitual sin, a lot of times it's sexual sin, and false teaching. That we see if a person is claiming the name of Christ, but they are disavowing Christ through these kinds of habitual, long-term, unrepentant actions... Paul and John, we see this in First and Second John, uh-huh. say that as a church, you need to expel that person from the church. Like I said, this is a very difficult teaching to talk about. And I've seen this done really well in churches, and I've seen this done really poorly in churches. And I think what makes the difference here is Paul's motive for doing this. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I want to break that up into two pieces. Number one, Paul... And the other apostles were convinced that getting holiness right is more important than making everybody happy. That right. was one of the things they were 100% committed to. But secondly, and I think there's a lot of people that are committed to that and don't really do it in the right way. Right. right. The exactly. second part of it is he was committed to this person being saved. He wants this person to be restored. If you look at the way that he talks about this, in chapter 5, verse 4, for example... When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which we read this as this person is claiming Christ. This is not just a random person they found on the street who's doing something sexually immoral. This person is participating in the church, sexually immoral, bragging that there's enough grace to even cover this. And he says, hand him over for the destruction of the flesh and... And I think this is really the most important thing. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Exactly. Good church discipline. And you don't have to call it that, but good discipleship. Challenging people where they need to be challenged. 
happens in the relationship of the church body. So we're not just going out and finding someone, you know, right. on Twitter or whatever. Right. Um, so you're saying social media? This social media is where we not, do this? not the best place for rebukes. <laughs> although I think public rebukes, you know, we could talk about that in a different episode. Uh-huh. But uh, public leaders sometimes I think that's warranted. But it's in the relationship. Right. It's in the church. And it is out of a love for the person. Um, one of the things you see Paul say elsewhere is those who are spiritual should restore a person. That doesn't mean those who think that they're holier than everyone. It means those who are under the guidance of the Spirit should restore a person. The fruit of the Spirit, we know those, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's the kind of rebuke he's talking about here. And he doesn't compromise any of the finality of it with the love and compassion of it either. You know, this is one of the things that I'm going to, shock you by saying this, our culture gets this right better than the church. For example, if you're a secular person and uh, you believe in the psychological maxim that enabling addicts, enabling people isn't really good for them. It isn't really loving them. And, you know, tough love. You see this in our world, but for some reason when we become Christians, we think we're supposed to be, I don't know, nice and so that tough love goes off the table and that enabling people becomes the norm rather than a loving response. Well, I, yeah, I think in maybe that one instance, I'm thinking of all the public apologies that the speech police demand in our society <laughs> where there's no possible forgiveness. The thing that's unique about the church is there is forgiveness and there is grace. We get the word grace wrong a lot of the time when we think about disagreements. We think grace means letting somebody do what they want to do and not saying anything to them. That's not grace. Grace is an empowering concept in the New Testament to turn away from sin and live a life of righteousness. So grace in this scenario is not, well, you know, he's he just he he sees this differently. I don't want to broach the subject. I mean, you know, he's kind Mm -hmm. of an important person and. No, grace says, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes as a community to help him be saved on the last day. Right. And what that means in this case is we got to kick him out of the church. He cannot be a member of this church because he's not a Christian. Mm-hmm. So this is difficult, and we probably could do a whole series of episodes on this. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to be prescriptive for every case of discipline, but you can't read 1 Corinthians in this case or in the ones that follow without thinking through this topic of okay they're willing to they're willing to kick a guy out of the church why what could be so important you know and this is not the only place you see this uh, probably the least read words of Jesus are in the book of revelation and in the seven letters to the churches, to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus is speaking to seven churches. You'll see this exact same kind of language mm-hmm. is, you know, repent or you will die. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cast them out. Yeah. There's this, this kind of an idea of pro- protecting your family against people that come into your family and want to destroy them. Right. And it's typically these two topics. It's mm-hmm. sexual immorality and false teaching. You know, chapter 6, though, brings in something else. And I know this lawsuit against believers is, is sometimes misunderstood. But let me just say, I don't know how much time you want to spend on this, but my read of this is that what's happening here, and I'm, I'm just going to be silent on the issue of lawsuits for just a minute, but the egregious part of this is lawsuits were a tool to get your way. Mm-hmm. If you were rich and you hired a really eloquent lawyer, you win, you get your way. 
And that was the way the world worked. That's the way business was done. And I think he's looking at Christians saying, I can't believe you would take advantage of a fellow Christian like this just because you could. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the context this is in. I don't, I don't think this is saying if you know, somebody hits, hits and runs you on your chariot in Corinth that you can't take legal action. Right. I think what this is saying is using lawsuits to take advantage of or to fraud, defraud another person. And I, I, this is a passage I could, we, we could talk to the rest of the podcast about, yeah. and I would just challenge people to start thinking about what Paul's actually saying here. Because in some ways, five and six, like we said, Paul has the strongest advice in these two cases as opposed to what he says later in seven through 16. Not to say that he doesn't, because I mean, he lays down the law in seven through nine and says, this is not me, this is the Lord who says this. Right. So it's not a matter of seriousness. It's just a matter of how much wiggle room there is in these specific cases. And five and six, so five from a church discipline standpoint, kind of the negative and six, from a mediation standpoint, are challenges to the church that we need to pay more attention to. Think about the stock that Paul puts in the collective action of Christians following their consciences in chapter 6. So he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So he's saying, you're really going to go trust a bunch of pagan people who don't know Christ, they don't know uh, the things that we've talked about in this letter, and you're going to let them mediate a dispute when you could find somebody in the church to do it? Why not just let somebody in the church do it? So he says in chapter 6, brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? That's a really challenging statement. Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He's later going to say, he's like, is there not somebody in the church that could just settle this? Yeah, he even says, you know, the least person in the church is more, uh, and he's talking about somebody who's really following Christ, is more capable Mm -hmm. of judging between unbelievers. But I really do think you see oppression here is happening a lot. It's like, well, I did this in my business, I'll do it here, and I will throw my weight around, if you will. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's calling, on the one hand, calling those people to be humbled. Why not rather be wrong? They go, well, yeah. you mean I lose money? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. You know, back yeah. to Philippians 2, have this mind that right. was the mind of Christ, who, even though he was equivalent with God, humbled himself. You see a really consistent theme here. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting, too, Cole, one last word on this. We typically do think about sexual immorality being... Uh, basically a matter of truth. There's not like a matter of opinion on this. The Bible is clear. But I would also point out in chapter 6 the idea of using your social status to oppress other people. He's just as serious about that. Mm-hmm. And we don't often think about that. That's true. He, he comes back to give several general principles, uh, especially in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Um, and he says later, all things are lawful, but what is what is useful for building up? Right. And these are practical matters. They're different on a case-to-case basis. Of course, we're not saying that uh, these principles are necessarily different, but these principles are applied to different situations. 
for example, to interject there, the idea of social status in lawsuits is going to show up again around the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. Some of you are having a feast. Others of you don't have enough to eat. And so that principle is going to get applied, like you say, to many different situations. Right. But he's relying on the fact that either the elders, although it's not explicitly mentioned here, you Mm -hmm. see that in a place like James, but either the elders or the pastor or a group of Christians together should be able to navigate these circumstances together. They should be able to decide what's going on in the church, what should happen, and be able to do something about it. And I think that we could return to a system where we saw, and and this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the spiritual leaders were relied on for a lot of different things. You see Moses, for example, relied on his military leader and Joshua, but the most consistent thing that the leaders were relied upon, you see this in the book of Judges, for example, is judging the people. Right. Is mediating between disputes. You remember when Moses decides he needs some help, so he appoints the 70 and says, if you have any really tough cases, bring me in on it, but you judge the people. Mm-hmm. This is a mediatorial role. And I'm not saying that we need to overthrow you know, the justice system or something. But I am saying, how much more could we as believers settle things and work things out and trust each other and be humble if we viewed the group of individual Christian consciences being led by the Spirit as a mediator uh, in addition to or even primary to what we see the role of our law courts to be. I agree. And my experience as a pastor has been when you get two parties who are both following Christ, this happens more often than, than I thought. But what happens a number of times is you get people who say they are Christians And all I'm going to say about that is that one has a mindset of Christ and one does not. Mm -hmm. And so then you say, well, there are two Christians. I would kind of argue that, that you have, you know, I'm not talking about people's salvation at the moment. I'm simply saying one of these people thinks like Christ and one of these people does not. I have not found there to be any success whatsoever in that situation because one person is thinking in a Christ-like manner, the other is thinking in a worldly manner. Sure. And a lot of what this is relying upon, even as we move into 7 through 16, is that you're relying on both people putting the interest of Christ first, being right. humble, looking out for the good of the church. I mean, you have to remember, these. this is not a huge group of people in Corinth or in any of these initial churches to where these really were communities of people. And they knew each other, and they were living close enough together that they were frustrated with each other and suing each other, obviously. And, right. Um, you know, uh, playing favorites and all of that. But Paul really does trust that if you have the Spirit of God living in you, and you really are trying to follow Christ, that built upon that framework, we should be able to solve some of these problems. Well, you have a common framework of the truth that you're both committed to. Without that common framework, you're in basically a worldly situation of everybody's looking out for their own interests. But it's beautiful to see brothers come together and Mm -hmm. have unity around the shared values, shared truth. Absolutely. So if, as we move into the others, we don't have time to talk through the, the other examples like we did these two, but these are the two premier examples of what Paul's trying to do in this letter to the Corinthians. So we move into chapter 7. We talk about marriage. We talk about singleness. There's a lot of, if you're single and you're listening to this, you've heard 38 sermons on, this, on these passages yeah. right here. 
and uh, maximizing your singleness and all of that. But I would I would say just think about the framework that Paul is using. So there's several times in here he says, think about live as you are, or think about this in the scope of eternity is one of the principles that he's applying to right. this is your circumstances right now are meant to serve God. You're supposed to be serving God wherever you are, married, single, Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're uh, a Jew who's a Christian now who's struggling with your conscience over food laws that you used to abide by and taboos, or whether you're a pagan and you never even thought twice about meat sacrificed to idols. All of this is in the framework of serving Christ, thinking about eternity, thinking about others more than yourself. I think probably food sacrifice to idols is worth saying a word or two about because it occurs in so many of our New Testament letters. And it's not a problem that we have right now per se. I think there are a lot of good analogies to this because this really is a matter of conscience. It's, It's all about cultural norms that some people have a problem with and some people don't and what to do about it. So maybe you want to give an overview of that because some of these other... Some of these others are pretty straightforward. Um, you know, six yeah. and seven, don't be sexually immoral. Okay, we still have that problem today. Right. You get to chapter eight and nine, and all of a sudden, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's not really a problem we have today. No, but the principle, uh, as you mentioned, is is just powerful, and it pervades the Christian life. So in chapter eight, you'll see this issue in Romans too. This issue had to come up all over the pagan world. The uh, Gentiles who became Christian... Uh, would buy meat in the meat market that had been sacrificed to idols. Get a good price, nice prime rib, take it home and serve it. The people who were Jews, who then became Christians, their cultural background was, well, you can't eat that meat. It's somehow defiled because it's been offered to an idol. Mm -hmm. So they come together as Christians, and that's a point of contention. And so the Gentiles are saying, what's the matter with you? There's only one God. These idols aren't real. And the Jews say, I know, but it really, really bothers me. This is the way I grew up. And so Paul comes in and he says, you know, Gentiles, you're correct Mm -hmm. in the sense that there is only one God. These idols aren't anything, and you can eat the meat sacrificed to idols. But, and here's the key in chapter 8, verse 13, he says, However, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He said, I'd rather not eat meat again then cause trouble to my brother. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'm right is irrelevant in this case. This is not a matter of non-negotiable. In other words, you can eat the meat, but you know what? You can always give up your rights. Mm-hmm. That's one thing you can't do in the Christian life. And uh, we kind of get this wrong. It's like, well, we can expand our rights right, into sexual immorality and other things. You can never expand them. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You can always give them up. Yeah, that's a really good way to put this because the direction matters. So what's happening here is he's saying it's not sinful to not eat. Right. You know, and so for you, you can not eat with someone, uh, not eat meat when you're in the presence of someone whose conscience is, is burdened by it. And that's fine, even though you technically are permitted to eat. And so you see Paul expanding the viewpoint of the party with the weaker conscience in this case. But what you never see him do is say, you know what, those people think that you should be able to do that in when it comes to sexual immorality or worshiping other gods or something like that, and saying, you know what, it's okay when you're around those people to do that, even though it's really (laughs) wrong. So it's a matter of limitation, limiting yourself from doing something um, that you actually could do, not doing something in addition to what you should be doing 
when you're around somebody else. And this is how I interpret chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 10, verse 23 that you alluded to. Everything is permissible to me, but not everything builds up. Uh, and I want to take that statement and make it smaller. It's permissible for me to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but it's not always the thing that builds my brother up. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, therefore, if that's the issue, then I'd rather never eat meat again. Right. And so I think that's a powerful principle to us that giving up our rights is a very normal part of the Christian life. And I would say if you're never in a situation where you are not giving up something that you could do, yeah, then you need to think about maybe where there are areas where you could actually be a better witness, where you could come alongside somebody who's maybe a less mature Christian or has a less developed Christian conscience and say, where can I surrender something that I could do so that I could be a better witness or I could be a better friend or something like that. Now, on the flip side, you have people that say, well, why should we be slaves to other people's preferences? You know, mm -hmm. why, why, why should I, uh, you know, have to abide by rules that aren't actually right? You mm -hmm. know, I think alcohol is a good example of this because uh, be, the way the traditions have developed in America, you have people that really do believe that drinking alcohol at all is sinful. Right. And I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches I think that. I think being wrong. filled being yeah. filled with alcohol as you'd be filled with the Spirit, wrong. Paul is crystal clear about that in right. this letter and elsewhere. But <clears throat> there are people, especially if you live in this part of the country, who really are, their conscience really is burdened by that issue. Right. And I think what Paul would say is, in the same way that the Jews were conscient, their consciences were burdened by meat sacrificed to idols, it's not wrong. But... He doesn't say, so when those people come over, make sure you serve wine because you need to prove to those people <laughs> right. that they are wrong. Right. No, he says, well, if that's going to make them upset, then don't do it. Right. That's, that's, this is what we're saying. This is one where the context really matters. It does. The context of having your father's wife doesn't really matter. And Paul doesn't give any cultural allowances for that. But in this, he says, this is a tricky issue. You're going to have to do what's best for the group. You're going to have to look to the interests of others. You're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to say, well, maybe I'm the stronger person here, but I'm going to bear with the weaker person because my interest is Christ, not them. And that's the key. You know, if somebody, if I see that situation and I don't like go tap somebody on the shoulder and say, I need to talk to you about this. But my point is, if you did, I wouldn't talk to him about the serving wine or the serving meat sacrificed to idols. I'd say the fact that you feel like you need to prove you're right here. Let's talk about the self-centeredness. Yeah, that Let's talk is about a what you're That is the root issue. Kind of putting you on the spot uh, here a little bit. I remember, and this stuck with me, when you were in college and you were doing discipleship and ministry, I remember you telling me that you had decided that you wouldn't drink. I know you don't drink alcohol at all, but in college, it would have been permissible once you were of age to do that. And it was legal, but you chose not to because you felt like that was uh, more beneficial to the discipleship you were doing. Well, I certainly think when I was doing college ministry that the ability to say to a college student where the pressure, the pressure doesn't get less necessarily as you get older, but social, the social situation changes. Right. For a college student who's pressed every day or thinks about, you know, every weekend whether or not they're going to drink with their buddies, it's nice to have somebody who can come alongside and say, you can do this. It's okay not to. Um, you can do what's right or you can do what your conscience says 
and you have people who are with you. And I think it's this principle of 1 Corinthians laid mm-hmm. out to say, yeah, at that point it was totally fine for me. And I didn't impose that on any of the people that worked for me, or I didn't. I don't think that every college minister should do that. I think it's pretty wise. I think you should think about it because it offers you a leg up on discipling people who are in college. But I don't think that's a universal rule. I think it's an application of this passage to say, what is going to be the most beneficial for the people you're doing ministry with? And in that situation, it was by far the best thing that I could do for them mm-hmm. to also not drink so that they would have another person on their team. They would have somebody who could serve as an example. They had somebody who could encourage them uh, to live the way that they knew they wanted to live. And so it's a matter of, this is not a black and white issue. Right. This is a matter of wisdom, practical wisdom in a circumstance. And you just have to pray and consult leaders and read your Bible and make a decision. And I would encourage our listeners on this as uh, we're talking about some specific issues here, but it's amazing how many opportunities we have to apply this principle. And that is, I'm perfectly willing to forego my, quote, rights in order to build up my brother or sister, in order to build up the church. Having that attitude, I think you'll find more opportunities to apply it than we realize. So we keep moving through these issues, and and a lot of these are going to be the same thing. I think probably the hardest issue in 1 Corinthians is the head coverings. I think it is unique because it's not an issue we have now, but the way that he argues is not really as culturally bound as we sometimes dismiss this to be. I mean, I have never heard anybody preach on head coverings in, I mean, I've heard very rarely anybody preach on them, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach on them in a way that wasn't like, this is a cultural custom of the time. We don't really need to pay attention to this. What's interesting is that's not the way that he argues in this chapter. He argues from creation, which is the same thing he does in a lot of other places that we will not dismiss as cultural and uh, I think this is a very difficult passage. Not willing to say that we need to all wear head coverings to church, uh, but I do think this is a difficult issue. Very tangled up in what was going on in that church at that time, in the same way I think when he's going to talk about the gifts later, he says some things about who can and can't speak in worship. Right. And in this case, uh, it's very different than the warnings and the advice that he gives in First Timothy, for example which would be applying to the church in Ephesus. This is where some background info really does help, I think. I think so, too. You know, I would, or I've taught on this before, and so uh, you can go back and listen to it and critique it. But bottom line, I'll say only this about it, is if we think that head coverings was a custom or it was uh, culturally situated and we decide to toss it out as not being culturally relevant today, we need to be very careful that we do not also toss out the undying principle behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, even if we choose not to wear head coverings today and we say that was their culture, his argument about the hierarchy of God over men and women is not time bound. Mm-hmm. And we need to be careful not to throw both of those out together because we have at yeah. times been tempted to do that. There is a movement of people who believe in head coverings. Ultra ultra reformed guys. I think R.C. Sproul's wife actually wore a head covering. Meat to sacrifice to every idols. Week. I mean, so I, I think there are people that take this literally, literally is a tricky term, but who who take this woodenly and yes. say yes. Now I would like to know if those people follow uh, 
verse 4 as well. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And that's right. We have a kind of a cultural tradition there where you take off your cap, your, your ball cap right. while you pray or something. I don't think this is probably the inspiration behind that. But just to say, there are a lot of very specific things in here. It's easy to be inconsistent. Well, I'll simply give you the last word on this. And that is, if you have issues with head coverings, but you are willing to wear a mask now that you've never done in your life yeah. everywhere you go, you have some <laughs> problems with uh, with consistency. <laughs> so the next section, we read a lot, a very specific section of this. We read this part about the Lord's Supper a lot, uh, especially verse 23 through 26. It's a recap. It's probably the earliest statement of the communion liturgy that we have, because you have to remember this being written in the early mid-50s right. is before what we read about in the Gospels in terms of being written down. Now, it's built on earlier tradition. We're going to see that in chapter 15. But this is an early statement of what communion is for, how it was instituted at the Last Supper. All of, all of the second half of 11 through 14 can be summarized in one principle. And that is, think about the good of the body of Christ before you think about yourself. Right. So people are getting drunk and bringing their own food from home during communion. And you got people that don't have anything and they have nothing. People are starting without everybody. In 12 and 14, when you have the gift of prophecy, you have people just standing up talking, you know, in whenever they tongues, feel like it. whenever they feel like it. And basically, Paul is going to say, think about other people. What is useful for building up? Right. What is orderly? What are we here to actually do? Worship Christ. Grow together. He loves that word, build up. Yes. It's, the word, it's a compound word in the Greek, oikodomeo, which just means house build. And it's a, it's a term of construction. If we right. are trying to build up the body of Christ, then what would we do in this circumstance? Well, we would wait for each other. Or, well, we would let the prophet speak one at a time. Well, we would look for an interpreter so we know what this message is. Because the message is more important than the act of prophesying. So the spirit of prophet is subject to the prophet in verses in chapters 12 through 14. All of this comes down to the principles we've been talking about. It's just new and different circumstances. Right. And I, I think we forgot to mention this, but... One of the reasons that 1 Corinthians is so unique is because Paul is responding to a list of questions that the Corinthians have given him. You see that at the beginning of chapter 7. Right. He's basically going down a questionnaire that they're asking him, and he's answering or he's treating the issues that they've asked him to talk about. Um, and so it's a little bit haphazard, but as we've been describing, the principles, the application of wisdom is the same through the whole thing. And I, I would say if you, if the, the spiritual gifts are, are obviously one of the hot buttons of 1 Corinthians, we have a whole series on this. We have a whole blog series on this. We should right. do more podcasts on it at some point. But I'll, I'll put the link, uh, our series in spirit and in truth, on the website. I think we have seven uh, different entries on this, dealing with this text, really dealing well with done. cessationists, dealing with charismatics, what is the gift of prophecy. Uh, there's all kinds of great stuff to dive into on that. But I'd, I'd like in the overview, at least, because if, you, if, you, if our goal is to help you read through this book, one of the things that you need to remember is that the chapters are not in a haphazard order. So the fact that 1 Corinthians 13 sits in the middle of his treatment on communion and yes. gifts and worship 
is not coincidental. It's not like they couldn't find any other place to put this amazing little treatise on love. For they weddings. Needed something for weddings. When you do weddings, weddings do yeah. that. Yeah, read this. No, it, it, it goes with the surrounding context. It's one of the most famous, most beautiful passages in the Bible. And I think it gets undersold probably as a treatise to love is how we usually treat it. Like, let's just give a description of love. Mm-hmm. Well, it's other-centered love that should govern the way that we treat each other. And uh, the way that it starts and the way that it ends in thinking, so we think through the lens of love, right. is really, really important. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there, there's so many ways to look at this, but the right way to look at this is put it into context. And, and if you read this carefully, this is a love that makes choices. This is a love that's really more about the choices you make and the attitudes you have far and away more than the feelings you have. Love is patient. Love is kind. We don't think of those as emotions. And in fact, you can't even make those emotions come up. You can't make yourself be patient with someone who's Mm -hmm. driving you crazy. But the Spirit of God can change the way you think about it. Yeah, this is true biblical agape love. Mm -hmm. Love is a decision that we make. Chapter 15 is is kind of the capstone of this section and of the book. Um, 16 is going to give a little bit of logistical information about the collection, some greetings, typical typical stuff that Paul does at the end of his letters. But chapter 15 is one of the most important and most famous passages in the Bible. And I would just break it into two pieces here. At the beginning, he gives a statement of the gospel, which is really, really important for several reasons. I agree. Uh, He says, now I would remind you of the gospel that I preached. I delivered to you in verse 3 of what was first importance that I received. He didn't make this up. He received it. And he says that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, raised in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared uh, to more than 500 at a time, to James, lastly to me. So this is his apostolic witness here. This is his authority. And um, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I'm working harder than anybody uh, so that, to show that the grace of God is, is within me. So one of the reasons I think this is important is because it's an early statement of what the first Christians believed. This is a statement yeah. that he received. It's a statement of the gospel. So if we want to get into arguments over what is the gospel, this is a great way to start. It's not the only place, but a good way to start. Um, what sticks out to you in this passage? Well, I, I agree with you. I remind them that he spent his 18 months in Corinth and was teaching them originally. This letter's written a little bit later, maybe a year or so later, but in 50, 51 AD. If, if we assume for a moment that Jesus is uh, crucified and raised in 33, we're just 16, 17 years after that. So you're getting what, like you said, I want to emphasize, you're getting a really early look at what did the church teach. Yeah, and there's people that will trace this back. I mean, this, this statement is a creedal statement. So they're saying, okay, if Paul received this, he tells us about going to Jerusalem mm-hmm. after he becomes a Christian, hearing from the disciples, getting the right hand of fellowship from Peter and from James. And so you're saying, okay, if this is 53 or 54, and he's received this, we know that he received it in the mid-40s. Right. Uh, and so we know that or he, he, he was affirmed in the mid-40s, he received it before that. So we can get back almost to the time of the ascension mm-hmm. with this kind of statement of what the church was preaching. It's consistent, it's what Jesus left them with, 
And uh, for all the differences between Paul and Peter, see the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15, they're preaching the same gospel. Paul did not invent the gospel. He didn't invent Christianity. He is preaching the same gospel that he received. You know, the second half of this chapter, or the second part, is about the resurrection and the resurrection body. Let me ask you this. Can you read 1 Corinthians 15 and think of resurrection as anything other than bodily? No, I think his point is there has to be a bodily resurrection. Uh, There's no concept, I don't think, in Paul's writing that you could even spin to say people are just resurrected spiritually. Right. They just become spiritual beings floating around on clouds. With wings and a heart. Right. Yeah. Um, No, it's a bodily resurrection. It's the same kind of resurrection that Christ had. And... uh, he has a great section in here about Adam and Christ. You see the same thing in Romans where he talks about in Adam all die and in Christ all come alive. And same thing, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Um, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits and is coming, those who belong to Christ. And get into some interesting eschatology here, but right. you get a great line in, in verse 26, uh, 25 and 26. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the resurrection will be the ultimate conquering of death. Right. And you see in First and Second Thessalonians, they're worried that they've missed the second coming. Right. And they're like, what about the people that died? We're supposed to be waiting for Christ. Some people in our church have died. Are they going to miss out? Do we have right. to, is this just, you have to stay until Christ comes back? And Paul says to them there, no, you're not going to miss it. Don't worry about it. You're not going to miss it. Everybody's going to know. There's going to be a big trumpet. And everyone's going to know. Here, the question is a little bit different. It's probably a little bit more in dialogue of people that are saying there can't be a bodily resurrection. And Paul's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be bodily. Everybody's going to be raised. You're going to know it when it happens. It's going to be glorious. Um, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. I mean, the Adam, Christ parallel, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So many phrases here to prove we're all going to be raised from the dead. And, you know, this one, it's funny because 1 Corinthians 13 is probably the most famous passage read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56 is the most common passage read at funerals, funerals right. uh, which is the perishable and immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And Paul always applies these things. You know, in verse 58, Therefore, okay, so if this is true, then, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, because we're going to be raised. So this is where he also says, you know, if Christ hasn't been raised, we're still dead in our sins. I mean, this is the linchpin of the Christian faith, chapter 15. Absolutely. Yeah, it probably doesn't get as much attention as it should. Well, it's long. It's hard to preach because it's That's true. It's got 58 verses. <laughs> very difficult to preach. But uh, so he ends. He is going to tie up a few loose ends. The The collection, we didn't, we haven't gotten to talk about this very much, but uh, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians, he's taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, and he delivers Which, it in Acts He'll talk um, about that some more in the second letter. Right. Because he's about to That's a come huge deal to Paul. It's not a very big deal to us. It doesn't get much attention for us. Mm-hmm. But he talks about that. He's going to visit them. Um, and 
really to understand 2 Corinthians, you need to be familiar with his plans for travel in 1 right. Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 9. Uh, his plans are up in the air a little bit, and he's going to get in trouble for that later with the Corinthians. But he greets a few people. He tells them that Apollos is hopefully going to be coming. And uh, he writes this greeting with his own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Typical Pauline line that you don't hear <laughs> sermons about. Um, and then he says, may love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So if I had one takeaway from 1 Corinthians, I would say it is unique in the New Testament letters of applying principles and wisdom, pastoral wisdom, to real-world situations. It's not a theological treatise in the sense that maybe Romans or Ephesians is, right? but it really gets down in the weeds of living as a Christian with other people. I agree. I think this gets down to the where the rubber meets the road and says, what does it look like to act like Christ, to live like Christ in my Monday through Friday, day-to-day frustrations, trials, conflicts, etc.? This changed the circumstances to 21st century circumstances, and this is as fresh as the day it was written. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.